thank you, team. May God the Spirit, as Ali just prayed, as we just sung, may God the Spirit continue to speak to us. May he speak in this moment. Amen? Earlier this week, or sometime in the last 10 days, I can't remember, I read a newspaper article, and the title was this, Disasters, Nuclear Threats, and Shootings. How much horror can we handle? I thought that was a great question. How much horror can any given culture handle? How much can you handle? One of our daughters has a friend who was shot in the leg twice in the Las Vegas shootings while her boyfriend was laying on top of her. A couple of days before that, one of our other daughters had a very good friend who committed suicide. That's just our family. Then I think, what would it be like to live in Puerto Rico right now? For that matter, what is it like, what's it been like century after century for millions and millions of people to live in many parts of the world where they have absolutely nothing? I mean, how much can we handle? How are you responding to what's going on around you right now? Over the last two and a half weeks or so, I've had two different conversations with two different people that illustrate the two extremes, the two different ends of the spectrum relative to response. One, I had a conversation with a woman who lives out of state who said she is so distraught, so um, scared, so upset about everything that's going on all around us that she has spent the last two weeks just weeping. She shut down. She's been drinking a lot. She's confused. She's uncertain. She's trying to grab onto superficial quick fixes. And it's not working. She can hardly face the day. At the, under, at the other end of the spectrum, Rhonda and I have a friend who's a retiree who's in his 70s. And immediately after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, he got in his car all by himself, drove to Houston, and volunteered with Samaritan's Purse, worked day and night telling us that the biggest problem in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey was the mosquitoes. And told us that it was one of the best experiences of his life. Certainly one of the greatest spiritual experiences he's ever had. Where on the spectrum are you? How are you responding? If God is sovereign, and he is, we believe he is, then this is not the time to stew, it's the time to serve. It's not the time to hide, it's not the time to hunker down, it's the time to help, to bring hope. It's not the time to sulk, it's the God-ordained moment to sacrifice. Uh, it's the time for the church of Jesus Christ, these different moments, 
is always, always divinely ordained time for the church of Jesus Christ to showcase and live out the glory of God. Amen? So we don't run from, we run into. And how do you and I respond with hope, with joy, with tenacity? This little epistle of 1 John, this series we're going through in 1 John, this little book at the end of the New Testament, a series we've entitled Love Works, tells us, John the author tells us that the key is knowing God. The key to a life of service, sacrifice, joy, and hope is knowing God. So how you and I respond to the world, how we view the world, how we respond to chaos, disaster, tragedy, death, is always, always a function of our knowledge of God. And for those of you that are not sure about Christianity, let me just say to you, knowing God is the only rational basis for service, for compassion, for hope, for living life and giving to others. There is no, there are irrational bases, but there is no ultimate real uh, rational basis apart from knowing God, apart from Christianity. So today, I want to talk about what it means to know God. I want to talk about what it looks like. I want to help you think about this, and I want you to help you think about it deeply because the issues of our day are so deep, they're so profound. And we, can, we have to be done with superficial living to make lives that of significant impact. So, I haven't had a chance to really delve into this, but when we come to verse John, you need to understand that first John was written because false teachers had swept into these churches in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor then, modern-day Turkey today, and they had come in claiming a false gospel, a false path to knowing God. Look at chapter 2 and verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know it is the last hour. Now, wait a minute, John, last hour? Uh, you said this about 2,000 years ago. How can that be? Well, the answer to that is this phrase, last hour, along with the synonymous phrase, the last days, is used over and over in the New Testament to describe the entire period of time between the first coming and second coming of Jesus. The entire period of time. If I had more time, I'd show you a lot of examples of this, all the way from the beginning in Acts chapter 2 throughout the book of Revelation. But what I want you to notice now is that John also brings up the Antichrist. The Antichrist described, he will describe, John is the author of the book of Revelation, he will describe in the book of Revelation, who is not Satan, but Satan's con man. Who according to the uh, book of Revelation will bring worldwide deception. 
But then, interestingly enough, John uses antichrists in this verse 28 in the plural. And when he does, he's referring to the false teachers, all of them. All, everyone who espouses the teaching of the false teachers. And then according to verse 19, if you go to the next verse, not 18, but 19, you discovered that these false teachers have come in. What have they done? They've split the church. And then if you skip down to verse 22, you discover it's because they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. All of them denying the Father and the Son. You see, the false teachers that came in did not believe in salvation through Christ. They believed in salvation through esoteric knowledge. Became what is called Gnosticism. That's a Greek word for knowing. It's a religious mysticism. It's, a, it's primarily a head thing. And what was just as bad as their denial of Jesus Christ and the gospel and their insistence on this kind of elite esoteric knowledge is they said once you attain that knowledge, then it doesn't really matter whether you love people or whether you live morally. That's why John over and over emphasizes loving one another and living morally in 1 John because the false teachers were denying it. So what's behind, what's underneath this little epistle is a debate about what it means to know God. Now in our section, the section I want to look at in chapter 2 that begins in verse 28 and goes all the way through chapter 3 and, and verse 10, what does John do? Well, John unpacks for us five ways you can know you know God the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity. And the very first way he says you can know you know God is when you are ready for Jesus Christ's second coming. You live a life where you're ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what do I mean ready? By ready, I mean you think about it, you look forward to it. It's on your radar screen. Look at verse 28. And now, dear children... Continue, now continue is the word abide. Continue or abide in him so that when he appears, he, Jesus appears at his second coming, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his, com at his coming. Now whether you believe what the Bible calls the rapture, that is the, the teaching that Jesus Christ is going to return and take all believers out of this world. And then there's different views of the timing of that. Let's say a thousand years before the second coming of Christ. Or whether you don't believe in the rapture, all Christians throughout the 2,000 year history of the church, and this has been the historic position of Wheaton Bible Church, believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. You can go to the bank on it. And that's John's point in verse 28. And he says the same thing all over again in chapter 3 and verse 2. You see, the teaching of the Bible is that just as Jesus Christ came the first time riding on a donkey as the gentle savior of the world, so he will come a second time riding on a great white horse as a righteous judge of the world, separating believers in Christ from non-believers, unbelievers. 
separating those who enjoy, those who will enjoy the presence of God from those uh, who will be shut out in a place of eternal punishment. The Bible teaches at the same time, Jesus will overthrow Satan. Jesus will usher in a new heaven and earth. All of that is bound up in this little word appears. All of that and much more. Now, what does this mean? This means the choices you will make today, the choices you will make this week, the choices you make in life matter because there is a forever. It also means there is hope. I mean, we look out and we see the darkness and we begin to feel despairing. But there is a hope that if you know Jesus Christ, you're going to graduate, you're going to be promoted, you're going to be transformed, you're going to take on a resurrection body, you're going to step into heaven, eternity, and all the suffering, all the trials, all the things that drive you crazy, the disasters, the diseases, uh, the death, is going to come to an end when Jesus appears. And all, now hear me in this, all you long for in life, Peace, contentment, joy, harmony will be your daily experience when Jesus appears. But John says something more in verse 28. He says, the way that you know you know God is that you are so walking with God, so abiding in God, so continuing in Christ that when Jesus appears, you won't be ashamed You won't be ashamed because you're living a life focused on Christ. When my kids were little, and I'd come home from work, come home from the office, uh, they, they would just storm at me. They would race at me, and then they would jump into my arms, and they would argue about who is, whose daddy's going to hold. And it was just this delightful, joyous moment seeing these precious little kids run at me, jump at me. When Jesus Christ returns, will you run to him? Or will you draw back? Maybe run the other way because you're ashamed. When Jesus Christ comes, and let's say he comes this afternoon at 336, I'm not predicting anything, okay? <laughs> what will be your disposition? Will you run to him? Or will you hang back? Man, man, John is saying, Jesus is coming. If you continue in him, you abide in him, you need not be ashamed. You can, you can be confident and you will not miss the greatest day in maybe the second greatest day in the universe or days next to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. Let me go on. The second... The second mark, we can call it a mark, the second way you know you know God is you see the depth of God's love. Now I'm going to tease this out because this is chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and these verses are amazing. 
Every verse is amazing. I shouldn't say that. Why do I say that? See, look at verse 1. See. See, see. Underline it. Circle it. I'll explain that in a second. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And this is such a big deal to John. He says it all over again. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us, of course, is because it did not know him. Dear friends, now that we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now, if you're going to understand verse 1, you have to understand, and this is simple, but it's easy to miss, that verse 1 is an outburst of joy. It's the word see. We say this all the time. Did you see that home run? Did you see that touchdown pass? Did you see our baby just took some steps? In verse 1, John is talking about seeing the love of God, how, how great and how lavish it is. It's seeing how much Jesus suffered for you. It's seeing how good God is for you in the sunrise, the sunset, in the circumstances of your life. It's the love of a mother that the mother lavishes on a newborn, lavishes on a newborn times a million. And John says, see, now, there's two aspects to this love. What exactly does John mean by love? Well, there's two aspects here. If you go back to the last couple words in verse 29, John tells us it's a love that has caused the Christian to be born again, born of him. This is the second birth that Jesus and all the New Testament writers talk about. Just as we are born physically, so in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must be born spiritually through faith in Christ. And the minute we trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, we receive Jesus Christ. The Bible says we are born again. We are transformed from the inside out. We are made new creatures in Jesus Christ. And John is saying, do you see the incredible love that has caused you to be born again. And then in verse 1, now we're going to move from 29 to verse 1, John takes it a step further, and he says, this is a love that results in us being adopted. Adopted into God's family. So twice in verse 1 and a second time in verse 2, he talks about us being children of God. Now, some of you are here today, you know, I've talked to people that have thought this or said this, and you may be a Christian and you, and you think to yourself, I have never seen a miracle. Oh, I just would love to see one miracle. I'd love to see miracles. And I want to say to you, being born again, being adopted into the family of God are two of the greatest miracles in the universe. And if you are a Christian, you are living them living now. I, I mean, think this through. Once we were enemies of the state, enemies of the president. We trampled his agenda. We mocked his abilities. We denied his reign. We wanted nothing to do with him. 
but because of the death, the invasion, the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. The moment we believe, we are forgiven, we are pardoned, we are pardoned, we are granted amnesty, we are made new creatures in Christ, born again, and we have been adopted into the first family. And the president is your father. Your father. And your father is the good king. And the good king is the one whose people prosper. And you will, you will prosper. So, John, what does it mean to know God? Look again at verse 1. In verse 1, John is showing us. John is doing it. It's looking at the love of God in Jesus Christ and saying, see? He says, I see it, I feel it, I experience it. And it's the most amazing thing in the world. Oh, do I long for you to experience this love. According to verse 1, knowing God isn't a mechanical thing. It's when the truth of God is character, the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, our union and our communion with God in, in Jesus Christ, our identity in Christ overflows our mind and flows into every area of our lives. It's when you don't just know, you see. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. It's lightning. You know what it is? It's lightning shooting through a lightning rod. And that's to be the daily experience of the born-again believer who's been adopted as children, uh, as a child of God. It's not just something you know in your head, man. It's something that dominates your life. So you bump into this area of your life and, and you look at it, rather than brushing by, you look at it and say, why in the world am I so worried? Or over here, how come I'm so angry? Or why do I lust after her so much? And then you bring that under the sunshine of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And you look at that love and you, and you say, what am I doing? Have you experienced verse 1? All your problems, your frustrations, your failures, your anxiety are because we don't live in light of the great lavish love of God in Jesus Christ. It's because we don't see and, and, and we don't feel God's gracious adoptive love. And to see this love as John is demonstrating is to box your problems. To bring them down and to make them small because what's greatest in your life is the wonder of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Oh man, do I want this for you. Third, the third way you know you know God is when you see your life changing. Look at verse 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves 
just as he is pure. Now, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so I just want to introduce one other additional aspect of this. And that is that throughout the 2,000-year history of the church, there has always been this debate about how active or passive a Christian should be in his or her spiritual growth. So let me paint the extremes. At one end, there's this extreme, well, God does everything. And you know, I, I struggle to read the Bible or I, I struggle to pray. So, you know, God's going to do it. God is sovereign and I'm just going to let him and I'm going to be passive uh, and, and God's going to have to do it because it's a struggle for me. At the other end of the spectrum, and again, in an extreme, it's man, no way. My spiritual life is all on me. And the more I pray, the, uh, the more I do this, and the, the, you know, X, Y, and Z, then um, the more God's going to be pleased with me. And that's a subtle thing. It's an unconscious thing. You know, I have my devotion seven days this week, so God, why in the world aren't you answering this prayer, right? Now look at verse 3. What does verse 3 say about this debate? Verse 3 says the answer is both. Not the extremes, but both sides. Verse 3 says you, Rob, purify yourself. But the way it's done is through hope. That is confidence and trust in Christ. The way you do it is by living vertically. So spiritual growth, growth on the one hand, uh, demands effort. But it's effort born in the wonder of all that God gives us in Jesus Christ, this invasion, this rescue that I am privileged to experience. So how could I possibly not struggle to talk to God? Man, it's worth the struggle. How could I not listen to him? I mean, Isaiah 48, I, I've quoted it before. It's a verse I'm thinking about a lot lately. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. Don't you want to know what's best for you? Don't you want to go in the way you should go? We get there by living under the lavish love of God. And so I'm going to give myself to memorizing the word. I'm going to give myself to thinking about the word, to asking questions. And frankly, I don't care how great the struggle is. I'm all in. And I want you to be all in. The point of verse 3 is that purity grows out of the application of truth. Your application of the truth to your life. Doctrine is always application to life. And application is always rooted in doctrine. Now let me unpack this. So for example, Christianity never says forgive. Period. Suck it up, forgive. Nor does Christianity hardly say forgive because it's good for you. Now, forgiveness is an incredible application and all of us need to extend forgiveness to others. But Christianity comes along and lays out the doctrine underneath and the doctrine is there is a judge and you and I are underqualified to be that judge, but that judge became a man who died on the cross to forgive us our sins. So because we bear this family resemblance, we always, always are struggling and working to forgive others, and forgiveness is a process, and often it's a struggle. So there's application, but it's born in doctrine. Let's say, take racism. 
or injustice or human trafficking, sexual slavery. All of those, in terms of application, Christianity say are wrong. You can't be a Christian and be a racist. Engage in human trafficking. Why? Because the doctrine under that application is we have all been made, we've all been created in the image of God. Or let's say you're insecure and you're really down on yourself. Or conversely, you're full of yourself, you're obnoxious, you're proud, you're arrogant. Or or you say, you find yourself saying and thinking and acting out, I cannot not sleep with her. We're not married, but I cannot not sleep with her because it's the only way I'm going to be happy. It's the only way I'm going to be fulfilled. Well, what's going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. Verse 1 hasn't taken root in your heart. There's no sea in your life. God's lavish love has been given to grip our hearts and to change our lives. Purity, according to verse 3, is doctrine applied to your life. Let me go on, the fourth mark. The fourth way you and I can know we know God, as John lays this out in this battle, this life and death battle with the false teachers, is that you, Christians, are, are, are people who delight in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ's first coming. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Everyone who breaks the law, in fact, every, I, should, I forgot the word sin. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared, Jesus appeared first coming so that he might take away our sins. And as a matter of fact, in Jesus is no sin. Now we have this um, verse that's troubling for a number of people. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now John has made a move from the second coming to the first coming of Christ here. And I want to say two things about this. First of all, all of us struggle with sin. All of us have secrets of sorts. All of us tend to feel down on ourselves relative to God and then um, full of ourselves relative to others. And there's this craziness going on inside of us because of sin. And that's true even for Christians. Verse 6, however, or let me say in verse 6, John is talking about something else. He's talking about someone who claims to be a Christian, claims to be, in his case, have this knowledge of God, but lives in habitual sin and is, hear me, indifferent to sin. And John is saying you can't live in habitual sin and be indifferent to sin and be a Christian. So you know you know God, John is teaching, when sin matters to you. Your sin matters to you. You hate it. Now you're never going to get beyond it. In this life we will always struggle with sin. That's the point of chapter 1 and verse 8. But John isn't talking about He's talking about a lifestyle that goes in the direction of sin and 
and frankly really doesn't care, the false teachers, if you will. Uh, but a second thing I want to mention here is let's say you've really blown it. I mean, you've really messed up. Infidelity, extortion, an addiction that you're attempting to hide. And you're a Christian. What I want you to see is as we travel through this passage, according to verse 9, there is hope. So let's move to verse 9. Let me read verse 9. John has been discussing uh, Satan, the works of the devil, and he says this in verse 9, just the first part of it. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Why, John? How can that be? And he says, not because of you, but because God's seed remains in you. God's seed remains in you. Now, what in the world is God's seed? Well, it's God's divine nature. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God's word. It, it's what it means to be born again. It's all of that. It's God's seed. So what John is saying to be a Christian means you're not indifferent to sin and you're not overwhelmed by sin. And what I want you to see in verse 9 is the comfort and the confidence this produces. I mean, what is, it, what is in an apple seed? But an apple. What's in an acorn but an oak tree? What is in God's seed in your life? but the living God. The seed of the glory of God is in you. And though you face extreme pressure and are deeply confused, and man, you've really blown it. If you are a believer in this, in Jesus Christ, this seed is going to change you. And that is our hope. That's the wonder of the gospel. Fifth, and I'll be done with this. The final way John tells us in this passage, you know, you know God, is when you are full of both, 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 grace and truth. Let's read verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Now, the reality is most of us, most of the time, are oriented in one direction or the other. So some of us are truth-oriented, justice-oriented. Others are grace-oriented, compassion-oriented, mercy-oriented. But what John does in this verse is brings them both together and says this is normative for the life of the believer. And it, re it reminds us of what Jesus says in John chapter 8. When the woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, what does Jesus say to her? Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. That's the grace. That's the forgiveness. It doesn't matter how bad what you've done is. Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. That's the truth. Do you understand what it cost Jesus Christ to say that? It cost him his life. Jesus Christ has not come to condemn us, but to liberate us so that we can live lives freely in his presence in light of his incredible, lavish love.
And John says, the way you know you know God is if you are a person that is aggressively, you're fighting to pursue righteousness. And you're gently and patiently and sacrificially loving others. What this world needs today are people who know the living God. And here John is telling us what that looks like. Let's pray. So Father, we come to you amazed at this love and I pray that each of us would be able to say, see, I see, I see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. So church, now we get to respond to the word that we just heard. Let's stand and sing these words out together. All I have because of Jesus All this promise One for me When he paid the highest ransom Once for all 